life is filled with contradictions, all right? We put things together that have no business being together. And we do this with language. And when we put two words together that, that don't belong together, it's called an oxymoron. Um, here are some examples of, of contradictory words that, that we put together. Virtual reality, exact estimate, jumbo shrimp, pretty ugly, original copy, living dead, old news, act natural, rolling stop, and only choice. We've got some oxymorons in the church too. And no, I'm not talking about the people who sit in the row next to you. But here are some examples of some church oxymorons. Staff meeting, junior high leader, men's fellowship, simple request, and a preacher's favorite, my last point. We're going to talk about something today that at first sounds like an oxymoron. We're sticking two things together that don't belong together, and that is servant leadership. Well, wait a minute, a servant and a leader at the same time? Aren't those opposite ends of the spectrum? You know, one's the top rung of the ladder, the other is the bottom rung. Well, the way that the world views greatness and leadership, these two things do seem to be opposites, a contradiction in terms. But Jesus, both in what he teaches us and what he models for us, shows us that servant leadership not only is a reality, but as followers of Jesus, it is to be a defining characteristic of our lives. We aren't to follow the same path uh, to greatness. We aren't to pursue leadership the same way that the world does. Now, our story today comes from Mark chapter 10. And, and to kind of set the scene for you, Jesus and his disciples, they are are, are traveling by foot. They are on their way to Jerusalem for the very last time. In fact, in verses 33 and 34, Jesus tells them plainly what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Here's what Jesus says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Now, James and John, they're, they're hearing all this, and, and they run it through their mental filters, and they end up hearing something that Jesus wasn't saying. Now, I, I don't want to be too hard on these two brothers because... They have been taught their whole lives. They believe that, that when the Messiah comes, that he would kick the Romans out of Israel, that he would reestablish re Israel on the world stage, not only as a great nation, a superpower, but as the dominant nation. And so when they start hearing that, that Jesus is going to be arrested, he's going to be turned over to the, the Roman authorities, that they're going to mock him and flog him and kill him, but Jesus will rise again in three days, then, then surely this must be his big messianic moment. 
This is that, that moment in, in the movie where the superhero reveals his superpowers and, and Jesus turns on his Messiah superpowers. He puts Rome in their place. He shows the leaders who's boss. And he reigns as king. So James and John, naturally, they want a front row seat to this. So they come to Jesus with a request. Now, before I read what Mark says about this, there's one detail Mark leaves out that we know from the other Gospels. And, and you need to know this to have, I think, a proper picture of what's happening here. And that is this. James and John don't come to Jesus on their own, but their mom comes with them. Right now, we don't know whose idea it was, whether it was the boys or, or mom. I mean, every mom thinks that their kid is gifted. Every mom thinks that their child is special. Uh, James and John's mom's no different, but, but she's got an extra a serious condition of this. But whosever idea it was, it, it's not a good look for James and John. So with that in mind, here's how Mark describes the scene in verses 35 and 36. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, and remember, mom's with them, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. All right? now, if anybody comes to you and, and wants you to commit to a promise without telling you what it is, be forewarned you're being set up. Don't do it. You know, don't agree. But he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, and I would just love to to know the tone of voice that Jesus used here, right? Was he sympathetic? Was he suspicious? Was he trying to fight back laughter? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, what James and John are asking here is no small favor. Right? They are asking for the primo seats in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, we are talking center stage, front row seats with backstage passes. We're talking field level, 50-yard line with full service, not just beer and hot dogs, but the finest import craft brews and lobster rolls, all right? This is what they wanted. To sit at the right or the left of the throne was itself a seat of power, all right? That means that, that you have the king's ear, that he listens to what you have to say, say. That means that if somebody wants to get to the king, they've got to go through you first. That means that you are in a position to implement the king's edicts. All right? This is a political power play of the highest order. But Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Can I translate that for you? Silly, silly boys, you've got no idea what you're talking about. Now, Jesus has been teaching them for three years about the nature of the kingdom, but they still don't quite get it. And then Jesus asked them this question in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Jesus isn't talking about beverages and baptistries here. I think James and John believe that Jesus is asking them, are you willing to pay the price for greatness? But the greatness that Jesus has in mind is something completely off of their radar. 
Here's what Jesus is, is really asking them. Are you able to drink from the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink from? Are you able to, to, to undergo the baptism of sacrifice? Remember, Jesus just got done telling them that, that when they get to Jerusalem, he is going to die. He's going to be flocked and beaten and, and arrested and, and, and all of this. And talk about fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. James and John boldly answered Jesus, we are able. We can do it. Yes, we can. And so Jesus agrees. Okay, fellas, you will drink from the cup. You will share in my baptism. But it's not up to me whether or not you said it to my right or to my left. And let me tell you, James and John would share in that baptism. They would drink deeply from that cup of suffering, each in their own way. First, there's James. James was the first of the disciples to die for his faith. He is beheaded by Herod in Acts chapter 12, one of the very first Christians to die a martyr's death. Talk about having a front row seat. James certainly did. Now, John's a bit of a different story. He lived until a ripe old age, well into his 90s. He was sort of the elder statesman of the church. Toward the end of the New Testament, we have three letters he wrote as an old man, uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in these letters, he refers to his readers as my little children, all right? Now, you can only get away with this if you're like great-grandpa age, all right? That's, that was John. But he endured a lifetime of trials and tribulations. Um, he lived out his years as a prisoner of Rome. He was on exile on the Roman prison island of Patmos. In fact, that's where he was when he received this wild and weird vision that gave us the book of Revelation. Now, in my mind's eye, as I read this story, I, I I get the impression that James and John and their mother wanted to keep this discussion private between them and Jesus. But you know how it is with secrets amongst friends, right? One disciple overhears the conversation, immediately goes to the other guys, hey, do you know what I just heard? Do you know what James and John are up to? And before you know it, boom, there's, there's a big explosion. It doesn't go over well. They are upset with James and John. Who do you guys think you are? What makes you think you're so special? Couple mama's boys, got to send mommy in to do your dirty work for you. Now, be clear. They're not mad at James and John because, you know, their sense of decency has been offended it's just so inappropriate that you would act this way. No. The truth is, they wanted those primo seats for themselves. I mean, did you ever have a friend that took the spot you wanted on the ball team, that got the role you wanted in the big school play, that got the promotion that should have been yours? That's what's going on here. That's why they are upset, all right? They were angling for the same spot, and now they think that James and John may have gotten the jump on them. So Jesus sees this as a teaching opportunity. So verse 42 we read, and Jesus called them to him. Now, 
let's just press the pause button right here. I don't want you to miss this part. Here are the disciples, and they're all fighting and finger pointing and mad at each other. And so what does Jesus do? He calls them to him. Hey, guys, come on, gather around, come over here. The answer to everything that divides us is to draw closer to Jesus. Do you get that? The answer to everything that divides us, you know, personal disagreements, church squabbles, politics, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. The answer to all of it is to draw close to Jesus. You see, the more we fight, the further from Jesus we are, right? But the closer to Jesus we are, the less we even desire to fight. The more we realize it isn't worth fighting about. The closer to Jesus we are, the closer to each other we become. Verse 42 continues. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, you guys, you need to rethink everything that you know about leadership and greatness from the world. Right? You're used to, to things working a certain way out there. You know how power and authority flow uh, in, in, in kind of this worldly leadership model. But Jesus is saying, um, that's not how it works with me. Now, Jesus, his wording here in the original Greek has a real negative undertone to it. He's saying, you know those who like to think of themselves as great leaders, those who have the reputation of being powerful. But there is this wink and a nod and this unstated understanding that <laughs> you and I both know that they have very little real influence, all right? Oh, sure, they can throw their weight around. They can issue threats. They can force you to comply. But nobody really follows them, not because they want to. Now, has anything really changed? <laughs> Is leadership all that different now than it was 2,000 years ago? I mean, so much of what we call leadership and power and greatness is simply jockeying for position, political maneuvering, power plays. And don't we still tend to think of the leader as, you know, the guy in charge, the big cheese, the head honcho. This is the person with the authority to make decisions and issue orders. That's the power leadership model. And people follow not because they want to, but because they have to. But Jesus says, I want to give you a new definition of a great leader. This model, he says, does not apply to the kingdom. This model doesn't work with me. My kingdom operates on a different kind of power. Jesus continues in verses 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Greatness is not found by putting people down, but in lifting them up. What Jesus is talking about here is servant leadership. Now, you can actually, you know, go to a, 
any university, attend a business college, take a course in servant leadership. You can go to a bookstore, go to the business section. You can buy books on servant leadership. And if you take that class, if you read that book, you're going to read about the name of Robert Greenleaf. Uh, he is credited with coining the phrase servant leader uh, back in 1970. In fact, he, he started a foundation, an organization to support servant leadership. And he's had quite a bit of influence over the last several decades. But Jesus was talking about servant leadership 2,000 years ago. The way to lead is not by, by climbing your way to the top, but by serving those on the bottom. And that's how great leadership has always been. That's how great leaders have always worked. One day during the American Revolution, General George Washington was out riding. Uh, as the story goes, he wasn't wearing his uniform, so you might not recognize him for who he was. As he's writing, he comes across a group of soldiers who are really struggling to lift up this heavy beam into position. And Washington watches as they're struggling with this, and off to the side is their corporal, who is shouting commands, giving instructions, and basically berating them for not getting the job done. And after watching them fail at this multiple times, Washington asks the corporal, sir, why don't you get in there and help your men? And the corporal says, do you not recognize that I am the corporal? At this, Washington gets down off of his horse and he goes and he helps the men until they get the heavy beam lifted into place. And afterward, he turns to the corporal and he says, if you would need help again, call on Washington, your commander in chief, and I will come. That's servant leadership. It's more than a theory. It's more than words printed on a corporate value statement. It's the ability to actually serve the people who serve us. Now, Jesus didn't just preach this to others. It was his personal mission statement. Verse 45, and, and this is our core verse this week. We are looking at 52 of the most important verses, passages of Scripture in the Bible, and, and here is number 30. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. If it was about power, if it was about position, if it was about authority, Jesus could have thrown his weight around at any moment. He was the Son of God. He is the Creator. He is the author of life. He and the Father are one. All right. He could have put the religious leaders in their place at a moment's notice. With just a word, he could have brought the whip and the beatings to a standstill. He could have easily shown Pilate and Herod just how little power they really had. And Jesus could have left Jerusalem completely vindicated. And he would have saved no one. Humanity was, would have still been in the, the clutches of sin and death, and we would have been without hope. But that's not what he did, right? That's not why Jesus came. He came 
to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's what he did. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to follow him down the path of servant leadership. Now, here's the great thing about servant leadership. Anyone can do it. Anyone, right? I can do it. You can do it. Anyone can do it. Anyone can always lead by serving, right? It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter your title. It doesn't matter your authority. It doesn't require any authority at all because anyone can inspire. Anyone can encourage and enable regardless of your rung on the ladder. But if you're listening and watching right now, you are a leader in some capacity, whether you lead a ministry at church or you're a project lead at work or not. Maybe you, you lead in your home, in your marriage, with your family, with your children, with your grandchildren. You lead with your friends. You lead with your neighbors. You, really, blah, you lead with your coworkers. You see, everything you say and do and don't say and don't do either raises the bar or lowers it. And so servant leadership is for everyone, whether you're 16 or 65. And we would all, if we would all be servant leaders, wherever we go, it would transform our church, it would transform our community, it would change our schools. And as a servant leader, you aren't pursuing power, plaudits, or position. You see, a servant leader enriches, enables, empowers, and encourages others. And even if that means that someone else rises to a higher position than you, that's okay. That's a success. I'm encouraging or uh, mentoring a couple of young people right now. And if one of them was to become a better leader, a greater preacher than I ever was, that's a good thing. All right. If I ended up serving on their staff someday, that would be a success. Now, I want to wrap this up by comparing and contrasting the difference between the traditional power leadership model and Jesus' servant leadership model. Now, in the traditional model, uh, there's, there's different positions. In the traditional leadership model, higher is better. But with servant leadership, lower is better. Jesus captures this with what he says in Matthew 25. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Worldly leadership and servant leadership use different motivations. You see, the worldly leadership model operates out of fear. Right? It uses intimidation and the threat of negative consequences to get people to do what you want them to do. Right? They might lose position. They might lose pay. They might face punishment. Right? And it is that fear that, that motivates them, that keeps them in line. But servant leaders use the motivation of love. People follow because they want to. They love and they are loved in return. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. With the traditional power model, titles mean everything. There was a pastor who ended up having to resign because of a, a leadership scandal, abuse of power. 
But before those scan, uh, skeletons fell out of the closet, uh, several years before, he had gone back to school and got his doctorate. And no sooner had he got this degree that he began insisting everybody call him doctor, even his wife. He had the big nameplate, Dr. So-and-so, all the trappings of his status and title. But the servant leader doesn't care about titles, right? Her only concern is, is how she can help. You know, in the Bible, there was a church uh, in a city called Corinth. And the Christians in this church, they got caught up in a fight over status. And they were arguing about who was greater because of who led them to Jesus? Which leader did they think was most important? Who baptized them? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or the super spiritual ones, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Paul then goes on to remind them just what their status was before they knew Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The two leadership styles use different tools. Power leadership uses intimidation, demands, manipulation, berating criticism. Servant leadership uses inspiration, encouragement, listening, and teaching. They have different foundations. One is built on power. The other is built on responsibility. They have different structures, right? Power leadership is vertical with a, a clear chain of command and authority flows in a downward direction, right? But servant leadership is much more horizontal in design. It's shared leadership. This is why the New Testament churches are to be led by a plurality of elders. Right? There isn't just one guy who's calling the shots, but it's multiple people working together as a team, as a family. Right? Christ is the head. We are one body. Jesus warns his disciples about the leadership of the religious leaders in Matthew 23, 6 through 8. He says, They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Right? They want the recognition. They want the titles. They want the status. But Jesus says, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. There wasn't to be a pecking order amongst them. Now, you are a leader. Doesn't matter your position. Doesn't matter your authority. You are a leader. And everything you say and everything you do is an act of leadership. 
you're either helping move things in the right direction or the wrong direction. So I'm asking you, which direction is your life pointing other people? And I want to invite you right now to be a leader. Not a boss, not a manager, not the one in charge, but a leader, a real leader, a servant leader. Now you might think, I'm not in a position to lead anyone to anything. I, I don't have a voice that can make a difference. I, you know, I, my leadership wouldn't matter. Well, in 1972, NASA launched a space probe called Pioneer 10. Now, its original mission was to reach um, Jupiter, photograph the planet, take some measurements, and send the data back to scientists on Earth. Now, at the time, this was a very bold and daring plan because no human-made satellite had gone any further than Mars. But Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission and so much more. In November of 1973, Pioneer 10 swung past Jupiter it used its gravity to, to launch it at a much higher rate of speed into the further reaches of the solar system. At 1 billion miles past the sun, Pioneer 10 passed Saturn. At some 2 billion miles, it hurtled past Uranus. Neptune at 3 billion miles, Pluto at nearly 4 billion miles. And by 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. But despite that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam information back to scientists on Earth. And the most remarkable thing about this is that all of these signals emanated from a small 8-watt transmitter, all right? No more power than you have in your bathroom nightlight. And it continued to do this with its 8-watt transmitter until 2003, where finally, uh, at 12 billion miles from the sun, either the transmitter lost power or NASA was finally unable to pick up its signal anymore. Now, I tell you that story to remind you of this one important fact. Never underestimate what your small 8-watt transmitter can do, right? Your leadership matters. Thank you, and God bless.